We're going to get started. Welcome again. We are continuing in our study of the book of Exodus this week. And I want to thank Cole and Mandy um, for preaching the last two weeks. Can we give a shout out to them? Thank you very much. I'm grateful. It was um, so good to get a break. You know, sermon writing can take a lot out of me. It's one of the hazards um, of having you guys having chosen a writer to be your pastor. My, my passion is, is totally for the church, but I feel like God has made me a writer more than anything. I think I was 13 years old in my little bedroom in Salina, Kansas, when I wrote my very first song. It was terrible, by the way, um, but I have a lot of those from that era. But I started writing then. Hardly a week has gone by since that time that I haven't written something, um, even if it's just like journaling. But things escalated up to, you know, books and Articles, not to mention over the last 14 years, I counted up over 500 sermons, which is a lot. And, but before all of that, I was a songwriter, and that's how I understood myself. And so I think that's fueling my appreciation for our text this morning. Um, the text comes from right after the, the climactic moment um, of the miracle at the sea. And, and that story is actually told twice in the Exodus, which if you remember, fits right with the story of Genesis and the two tellings of the creation story. And this is done on purpose to make them similar. Um, one, one telling is done in prose, one is done a second time as a song. And that's what we read or heard read earlier. And it's kind of weird. The details are all there in 14. So why include this song going back to the same event? At least part of the reason is to match it with Genesis. But also, there's just something about music. Humans write songs about the things that are important to us. In every culture, in every part of the world, in every era of human history, people have sung songs together about the events that, that seem big to them. This Sunday, actually, by the way, marks 18 years that we have been a church. Isn't that amazing? So 18 years ago, we started. That's insane. We're a, we're a whole person who can register for the draft old as a, as a congregation now. Um, and, and, and over that time, we have never met on a Sunday morning without singing songs. And this is pretty much true of every community of faith, um, it, not even just Christians, anybody all over the, the world. Because music seems to have this other dimension that goes beyond normal prose, normal forms of writing. And it's a dimension that seems powerful enough to reflect those important moments. I think I've told you this before, but Plato, the philosopher, was very suspicious of music for this because of its power. He said it was dangerous um, because it could bypass the mind and speak directly to the heart. And so he argued that music should be strictly controlled by the state. He once said, musical innovation is full of danger to the state. For when modes of music change, the fundamental laws of the state always change with them. He would have hated Radiohead, as did so many of my friends. He one time said, let me make their music, and I don't care who makes their laws. He thought it was that powerful. In fact, he began his whole um, uh, um, method of education using music. I've seen this um, firsthand. When I first started playing professionally as a musician, our first gigs were always in churches and bars because those were the people who paid money to musicians. So we would play both. Those. Sometimes we just play the same music in both, both places. Um, but I saw in that music break down hard-hearted people and move people, even heal people, even sometimes in bars. 
Sometimes even in churches, it would do this. And I saw go the weather way. I saw it corrupt lives and possess this power over human people. And maybe this is why Plato, his whole pedagogy, the way he taught was using music in the beginning. It's sort of like how we teach our kids the ABCs by using that song. One of my um, favorite record producers is a guy named T-Bone Burnett. Anybody heard of T-Bone? I, I learned a lot about you if you know about T-Bone Burnett. I, I love this. He was Bob Dylan's guitar player, but then he became a music producer, and he, he worked with everybody from, like, Roy Orbison to The Who to U2. He's made huge records. But he says this. He's also a music historian. He said, music for centuries and centuries was used to teach everything. Language, mathematics, history, the news was music. Everything traveled by song. And it was used to teach ethics. And it was used to create conscience probably more than anything. I like that idea. It was used to create conscience. Music does. Many scholars of linguistics, of language, have this theory um, that language itself developed through song. That the earliest forms of language, human language, were little songs and, and rhythmic vocalizations that kind of synchronized people's experience of the world that then later on took on some kind of symbolic meaning. So I, I'm going to see if we can pull this off this morning. We're going to kind of demonstrate this. So we're going to cut the, the line right here between daughter and father. Y'all are on separate teams. That's just how we roll. And so this, everybody on this side, just real quick, give me a whoop. Lame, but let's try again. Whoop. Okay, now this side over here, I want you to clap with me. We're going to clap a rhythm, okay? So we're going to go. Keep it going. Now we're going to put our whoop in, okay? Whoop. Whoop. All right, now let's dance a little bit. No, we don't have to dance. Okay, that's good. Thank you. So just imagine that we're an ancient people, and every day we have to gather water, and everybody hates it. And when it's time to gather water, everybody hides. And so we start doing this to get people out and be like, okay, we'll go gather water, right? And as soon as you do that, as soon as that weird whatever, whoop, and clapping, as soon as that takes on symbolic meaning, you're doing language at this point. And they think this is likely how language itself began with human people, simple songs and, and rhythms and poems and rhymes. And in fact, in the archaeological record, the earliest forms of writing that we know are songs and poetry. Humans seem to have written down, at least, songs and poetry for thousands of years before they ever wrote something down in prose. And yet, if someone walked out in off the street while we were doing that, they would think we were nutters, like right there, when we were all doing, like, what kind of church is that? It must be charismatic church or something like that. But, but, but that's because they don't know the symbols. They can't interpret the language. And so this can seem often very foolish to those on the outside. It was the philosopher Nietzsche who said, those who were seen dancing were thought to be insane by those who could not hear the music. That describes the Christian life, I think, in a lot of senses. We were, as a family, we were in Chicago on vacation last week, and we saw a lot of folks on the street who were obviously struggling with some kind of mental illness. 
and they would often be sitting alone on the subway platform, kind of talking to themselves or chanting or singing something. And then there was this other group of people um, with headphones on, just vibing to a song, often, often their own little world. And it was from at least a different distance. It was sometimes hard to distinguish between the two groups of people, right? If you can't hear the music, someone vibing to the songs in their headphones, it might seem a little crazy. And if you can imagine the music, the other guys seem perfectly sane. Um, but for those who know the symbolic meaning, music really can bind us together in powerful ways. Music has this, this potent interpersonal dimension that helps us transcend our individuality. One of my favorite um, songwriters and musicians is a guy named Jeff Tweedy. Any Wilco fans? There's, we're small, but we have a powerful voice. Um, Je uh, Jeff Tweedy says this. He says, music is most magical when everyone can lose the burden of self and be put back together as part of something bigger. I love that. Music helps us lose the burden of self. That's a strange twist of words, but I think it's, it's a good turn of phrase. The burden of radical individualism or libertarianism, right? These, these things that run so deep in the American culture, but they just cut right against the Christian story in the gospel, these things do. Music sort of tears that down, deconstructs it for a moment, and then puts us back together as something bigger than ourselves. Tweedy, when, if you've ever seen Wilco in concert, he has this song called Jesus, Etc., and they'll, it's kind of a chill song. And so they'll start it, and he'll step up to the mic and sing the first line, Jesus, don't cry. And then he steps back, and then the whole crowd goes, you can't rely on me, honey. And then they just, he, they, the crowd sings lead vocal for the rest of the song. It's just a sing-along. It's like, it gives me chills even just thinking about it. It's my favorite moment of their concerts. He's doing this on purpose. He's giving this moment where individuality kind of goes away, and we experience what it means to be part of community. And for all these reasons, I think music is an incredible comfort to us. I, how many of you would say that I sometimes take refuge in songs, in music, listening to music of some kind? There's a lot of us, you guys. It helps, helps us feel better, right? It gives us energy. It sustains us. Um, the, uh, Albert Schweitzer, the great doctor and humanitarian, said, there are two means of refuge from the misery of life, music and cats. I don't know about cats, but he's right about music. Music literally got me through middle school and high school. Anybody else? It's like I was, this, I was a pretty lonely kid because I was an artist and didn't know yet that I was an artist. And so I had this angsty outsider thing going. I spent hours, just, just thousands of hours in my basement listening to music, playing music, writing these horrible songs. Um, but it made me feel better. It, it comforted me. And eventually, it brought me into community. I mean, almost everything I learned about friendship in those early years came through other musicians. It was a bunch of guys like Ryan Green and Rustin Smith, who I played with, who taught me. They were like, you suck as a friend. And they, they taught me how to do it. And music is often in what stitches us back together as people and as communities and it's what we turn to when words don't seem like enough. The author Victor Hugo said, music expresses that which cannot be put into words and that which cannot remain silent. So when we're trying to ex express kind of the inexpressible, we sing, we play, we use poetry and melody and harmony and dissonance. 
and rhyming and, and meter because with music, it's, there's more to the words than just the words. And how else could we nip at the heels of this God who is indescribable and invisible and mysterious? And so the church has always used music. Martin Luther said, music is the art of the prophets, the only art that can calm the agitation of the soul. It is one of the most magnificent and delightful presents God has given us. John Wesley and his brother, oh my gosh, hundreds of hymns that have shaped um, the, the church over the years. Calvin said, since we can't paint or draw God, the best thing we can do is sing about God. And singing is actually the most reiterated command in the Bible. Did you know that? Singing. Sing, it says over and over. Sing, just sing, just do it, sing. And what we probably don't know is that the first time the people of God ever came together to sing a song to God is the first time they ever came to this like vocalization of a corporate song of praise together as one is um, right here in the 15th chapter of Exodus in this second telling of the miracle on the sea. It's the passage that we heard read earlier. It's, it's actually meant to be sung. It's an ancient song. The Hebrew people call it Shirat Haram, the, the, um, or um, Shirat Hayam, the song of the sea. And it's one of the most important texts in the scriptures. It's part of um, the Hebrew morning prayer service so, um, called the Shacharit. And so de devout Jews um, would chant or sing this every single morning. They still do to this day. Many of them know it by heart. They devote, the Jewish people devote one Sabbath each year to this song. It's called Shabbat Shirah, the Sabbath of the song. It would be like our Palm Sunday or something like that. And yet you and I probably don't, I mean, we didn't know this probably when you heard it. You, some of them might have been familiar, but we don't really know. Jewish people would know this. The Eastern Orthodox Church sings this all the time. They'd know it like we know the 23rd Psalm, except they'd know the 23rd Psalm too. Um, <laughs> I think... Part of what's so incredible about this passage is that many scholars believe that the Song of the Sea, this hymn, is actually the oldest passage in the entire Bible. It was the first thing that's in our scripture ever to be written down. These two scholars, Cross and Friedman, back in the 1940s, um, they did the work on it. And, and, you know, scholars can track the Hebrew language and the way it changed down through the years, how like spelling and grammar and, and words developed over time. And these, these guys showed the Song of the Sea is, is the most primitive, the earliest form of the Hebrew language. And then they, they cataloged all of the instances in which um, it's quoted. The Song of the Sea is quoted by other sources and, and sources that they can date. They know when they were, and this is older then. And then they went through every manuscript um, where little bits of this song were quoted. They went through um, archaeological relics, ancient tablets, inscriptions, epigraphy. They went through um, everything in the, in the record and really just showed the song of the sea, the, the Shirat Hayam, is, is the oldest form of the Hebrew language in the written scriptures we had. This is in the 40s. Then in the 50s, they find the Dead Sea Scrolls, and everybody's like, uh, it's gonna, this will prove it wrong. It's been, what, 70 years since then? And, the, and it's, it's holding up. 
This, this song from Exodus 15, uh, it's actually Exodus 15, and then the song of Deborah from Judges, they're, they're kind of linked. They're actually the first bits of scripture ever to be written down. If you don't buy it, it doesn't really matter. It, it's, it's just cool to think about that. This song is really, really old. And it's the first worship song ever sung by the Israelites. And, and so down through time, the people of God have protected this in special ways. You know, ancient manuscripts all had to be copied by hand. And in the rabbinic laws, there are rules for how to copy texts. And there's this whole section in the rabbinic law just on how to copy this text. Uh, the Shirah had, had special treatment under the law. Look at this picture. Um, this is every, every Torah scroll, it's, it's there in that center pane. Every Torah scroll stipulated that the Shirah was to be copied in this special pattern so that the columns looked like bricklayers' art. It says, uh, quote, a half brick over a whole brick and a whole brick over a half brick. That it's always arranged like this. And then singing, it's, it's to be arranged in antiphonal form, which means it is always to be sung or recited in alternating stanzas, the, the way that um, uh, Julie and Steve did earlier for us, alternating these, you, you speak a line, then you listen to a line. And so the, the Shirat Hayam had this, it had to be written in a particular way, it had to be sung in a particular way. And then they have these big fights about how it first happened. Something Moses would sing a line and then the people would sing the next line and copy his melody and that's how they did it. Some think he and Miriam, his sister, made it up and they performed it first. Some think they, they split the whole nation into two groups and, and had a big rehearsal. It's like, and we don't really know. We do know though, it's always written the same way. It's always sung antiphonally, this alternating. So you both speak it and hear it. And we know that it begins like this. Let me sing. Let me sing to Yahweh, for he triumphed. Triumphed there, Ga'ah is upon. It means um, both triumphed and raised by the sea. It's both at the same time. He's kind of, he's, he's throwing shade, like right from the beginning here. Let me sing to Yahweh, for he triumphed. Horse and rider he, kept, he cast into the sea. Their rider is Rochev. It means the second rider in the chariot. My strength and song are Yah. That's a short, shortened form of Yahweh. Like um, as when we say Alleluia. And he became salvation for me. Right there, the word salvation, it can be translated a lot of different ways. Uh, it's Lishua, which literally means my deliverer, which would sound familiar. God as deliverer. This is a huge idea for us. This is a brand new thought to them. God as deliverer. God is Lishua, my delivered. It's a totally new concept. And, and we might notice as Christians how close Lishua sounds to Yeshua, the, the common um, pronunciation of Christ's name. That is, by the way, not a Jewish interpretation of this passage. Um, but they go on. That was funnier than you thought it was. Um, <laughs> the, so then it goes on. This, this is my God, and I'll praise him. My father's God, and I'll hail him. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Um, this stanza blows me away. It's just packed. We could do a whole morning just on what's in this stanza. I'll try to say it really quick. It signals a major theme for this whole song. Remember, 
um, are in our past weeks, the people of God have been in Egypt for like 400 years. Their, their problem there is not just that they're enslaved. Their problem is, remember, it's not enough just to leave Egypt to become a free people, right? More has to happen. Their problem is they don't know who God is. And so since they don't know who God is, they don't know who they are. And in their world, Pharaoh's power is much more obvious than Yahweh's power. And they didn't even know Yahweh. They didn't know Yahweh was God's name. They just called it the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, like the weird God that was always leading our fathers. But here, here they come to realize the God who has just saved them at the sea. That's the God of their fathers, same God. They're just putting that together. And so this song isn't really even to commemorate, just simply commemorate a victory because for one thing, they did nothing in this victory except stand around and tremble and grumble, right? Um, God is the agent, but suddenly it clicks for them. This is the God of old. It's the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our father's God, it says. And that God is a warrior and his name is Yahweh. This is new for them. That's the God who just set us free. It's like, ah, you get it now. And then it says, Pharaoh's chariots and his army. He plunged in the sea, and the choice of his troops drowned in the sea of reeds. The deeps covered them. You should recognize that, the deeps. The, remember the spirit of God hovering over the deep in Genesis 1. Just another connection to the creation story. They sank in the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Yahweh, awesome in power. Your right hand, Yahweh, crushed the foe. And in your triumph's greatness, you threw down your adversaries. You let go your fury. It consumed them like straw. It's doing all of, in Hebrew, it's there too. They're doing all these similes where it's like or as. And, and, and it's saying it's like a, like a stone. They were silent or they, they sunk. Like straw, they're consumed. Like lead, they sank. And by the wind from your nostrils, water was massed and piled up like a heap. The deeps congealed. They, they came together in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I'll pursue, I'll catch up, I'll divide spoil. My soul will be sated. I'll unsheath my sword. My hand will deprive them. You blew with your wind. Sea covered them. They sank like lead in the awesome water. So there are all these connections in this, these stanzas to the creation story. In Genesis, I mean, there's the, the two tellings and the two tellings. Then there's the water of chaos, right? The Spirit of God coming, hovering over the face of the waters, the breath of God in Genesis, separating land and water. Here, separating land and water to, to let them through. It's just, it's, it's recapitulating that whole story. And so a big part of what this song is emphasizing is that when Lishua, my deliverer, finally shows up in the world, it's, it's a creation level event. God's act of, of delivering, saving, redeeming, however you want to describe it, it's always an act of recreation, of new creation. And it's tethered to that old Genesis creation story. And in this case, it's the sea that is the instrument, uh, both of judgment, but of new creation. Remember, waters are connected kind of to the idea of amniotic fluid. We've seen that with Moses in, in his little ark going through the, through the waters. People are born through water. So the, this parting of the sea was God's way of sort of getting all of creation involved, or at least the sea representing it, in the salvation, the redemption of God's people. Both confronting 
the dehumanizing forces that enslave humanity, but also it's this symbolic new birth. Mandy talked about this last week. They're, they're becoming a new creation. And of course, Pharaoh, empire, and its pyramid of power, remember, that turns everything into a commodity and then takes all the value up to the top and then enforces this with, with violence. It ends up always treating the people at the bottom like chattel. And you don't get to do that in God's world. Because on, on a very basic level, God has designed the very creation to work against folks like Pharaoh who exalt themselves like gods and treat people in inhuman, inhumane and dehumanizing ways. The sea will eventually swallow them up. The consequences are almost natural. They're, they're wired into creation, which means all of God is, is behind them. And so they'll, they'll freeze like stones. They'll sink like lead. They'll They'll be consumed like straw because they've made themselves stones and lead and straw. They have chosen to work against creation, so creation will resist them. And then what is left when it's all said and done is this new people, new creation. And just as Moses was born in his ark through the waters, which is connected to Noah as well, there's that Genesis connection, Israel is, in a sense, being born again through the waters, through the Sea of Reeds. And now, over the next 40 years in the wilderness, they'll, they'll grow up. They'll be transformed from this ragtag group of slaves who just trust in Pharaoh for everything and are just kind of wilting flowers into to human beings who are strong and trust God and know how to live and trust that God will feed them and lead them and who learn to try to navigate creation more faithfully. They're starting to understand more and more about who this God is, and so they understand more about who they are. And so they say, who is like you among the gods, Yahweh? Who is like you, awesome in holiness, fearsome with splendors, making miracles? Notice what, what it says here. Who is like you among the gods? They still have this belief in many gods. We talked about this a lot in Genesis last summer. Torah is this long story about how God moved the people from just kind of polytheistic pagans um, who, um, polytheism means you believe in many gods, people who believe in many gods, to monotheists, people who believe there is, in fact, only one God in existence. And in the middle of that was this long, long period of what's called monolatry. That's the theological name for it. It just means that they still believe there's a lot of gods but they only worship one God. They only have one God. And here they're learning through the plagues. We talked about this, that really only this one God seems to have any kind of power. The plagues show the other gods is kind of impotent. And so here at this dramatic moment by the sea, um, the people have left Egypt. But now as they sing this song, you realize they're leaving the gods of Egypt behind as well. And they are now declaring in no uncertain terms their utter complete loyalty to the God of their fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who turns out to be the same God who created everything, who turns out to be Yeshua, their deliverer in this, in this place. And this, this is the only God. They might still think, you oh, know, there's a pantheon of gods. This is the only God now of any significance. 
power. And this God works with creation, and it's recreating them anew. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? It's so, so rich. And so they say, you reached your right hand, earth swallowed them. You led in your kindness the people you saved. You, you ushered in your strength to your holy abode. That word abode is really important. Um, they're not headed to the promised land right now. They're going to God's abode. There, there's this um, allusion to God taking them home. God's bringing them home to his place and to, to parent them, to marry them. These are the images they'll use later. Peoples heard, they shuddered. Shaking seized Philistia's residence. Then Edom's chiefs were terrified. Moab's chieftains, trembling seized them. All Canaan's residents melted. Terror and fear came over them, and the power of your arm, they hushed like a stone. Um, these are all the people who inhabit the promised land. These are people they're going to have to face later on. Now they're taking courage. Till your people passed, Yahweh, till the people you created passed, you'll bring them and you'll plant them in your legacy's mountain. There's an argument over this, but I really think this is alluding to the temple in Jerusalem. That's the mountain where they'll be planted like a grapevine, like a fig tree, like an olive tree, like a bush. All these things, all these images that they'll use throughout the Old Testament and even the New. All those rich images are in play here. And they will bear fruit that will feed the nations. This is the fulfillment. It's talking about the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. I will bless you to be a blessing to all, all the world. And so then, then they kind of are beginning to end it out. Your thrones platform, this, this temple, your thrones platform that you made, Yahweh, a sanctuary. Lord, that your hands built. Yahweh will reign forever and ever. God, God will be their king, be their guide. They're, they're pledging their allegiance to God. It's really stunning. And so what we have in this song is, is the first worship song in the scripture, the first active corporate prayer. And really, there's a sense in which this is the official beginning of the Hebrew religion for them. And they're going to hit the gas from here on out. We'll be, we'll be covering that. But as, as the people of God realize this God who's leading and delivering them, it's the same God from our creation story. It's the same God of our fathers. And this became, they, they kind of um, shed a skin at this point. It's a radical change. In fact, you can see it in the, in the language. Up to this point in the scripture, when they describe God, they say, the God of our fathers or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After this point, when they talk about God, very often they'll say, the God who brought you up out of Egypt. It changes the way that they name Name God from now on. It's no longer this far off thing that the patriarchs knew about. Now it's them. It's not just the God of their fathers anymore. It's their God too. Oh, it's stunning. This is the moment. Not that it's all rosy from here on out. Um, they will get it wrong more than they get it right, really. And God will call them account many times by saying, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. What are you doing right now? Like this, this is going to come up again and again, right? And so here at this moment, when they first sing Shirat Hayah, the, the song of the sea, it inaugurates this new season, this new, I don't know, life stage for um, Israel, for the Israelite people, a new chapter in the life of Israel. They're beginning to understand who God is. And so they're beginning to understand who they are better. 
and they're starting to stand on their own two feet, and it's kind of a story of them being um, pushed out of the nest a little bit. And they're going to have to learn in the wilderness, it's going to be rough, right? (laughs) Who this God is and how to trust God to lead them with this pillar that's a cloud by day and then is all lit up at night. But, But what has happened here, there's a telling and then there's a song. And this song says, everything has changed, right? Nothing will ever be the same. You, you only can say something like, like that in a song. Um, and so that's what they do. It's just a stunning moment. Okay, we have to stop because we're out of time. But here's what I want us to do. Um, I want you, I'm going to ask you to stand together. And we are going to... We're going to perform this song together. I won't make you sing because we don't know any of the singing of this, but I want us to recite the Song of the Sea together as our, our benediction here, our closing before communion. And um, so since we can't sing it, let's recite with a little bit of, of gusto, okay, people? And um, if you'll throw the first slide up there, you can see I, I've labeled it. The two groups are going to be ladies and men. So L is, is, if that's before the line, then ladies read that line. If M is there, it's, it's the men. And so, ladies, you're going to kick us off. Let's read this um, whole song of the sea together. Let me see. Send its rider he cast in the sea. My strength and my are Yah. He became salvation for me. My Father is God, and I'll hear Yahweh is the Lord.
receive communion now and uh, invite anyone who calls on the name of Christ, um, Yeshua, our deliverer, um, to join us at the table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he passed it out to his guys, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this whenever you gather in remembrance of me. And then the same way after supper, he took the cup and blessed it, and again, passed it around this common cup and said, this cup is the new covenant, a new deal um, between us and God in my blood. And he said, whenever you gather, drink this cup, eat this bread, take my life into your life and re remember how you are new creation. You are made of the stuff I'm made of. You're, you're taking my life into your life and then being sent out into the world. He said, whenever you gather, just do this. Trust it. And so this is why, this is why we obey this command. And um, so I invite you to come forward in a moment. The ushers will release us. And the way we're doing this right now is we'll just have you come forward and you'll be um, given this um, terrible shrink-wrapped um, communion stuff. Um, but it's the best we can do. It's the safest thing we, that we can do. And so they'll, they'll just say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ, and you can say back, I will remember. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us um, a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive them into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?